Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is Season 2, Episode number 35, and today I'm delighted to be sitting down with an absolute legend in the field of sports psychology, a man who's worked nine Olympic Games and with countless elite and professional athletes, as well as leading Fortune 500 companies, Dr. Peter Jensen. Dr. Jensen has written three books, The Inside Edge, Ignite, The Third Factor, and most recently, Thriving in a 24-7 World a compelling look at how everyone can use the skills of energy management to enhance personal resilience under pressure. In this episode, Dr. Jensen will discuss his first experiences at the Games and working with elite Olympic athletes, as well as what stood out and how things have evolved over time. Dr. Jensen will then discuss energy management. What is it? Why is it important? And how does it play a role, a fundamental role, and your ability to react and respond to stress. Dr. Jensen will also share how energy management is different from time management and the value of pressure for performance. He'll also outline some ways to minimize energy drains on the body, how reframing and breathwork are powerful tools to control energy management, and what stress and anxiety does to attentional focus as well as how imagery and emotions are actually the fast track to the brain. A ton of great stuff here from Dr. Jensen. Phenomenal, phenomenal insights here. Really appreciate him taking the time here in Montreal, where we are with men's Canada basketball preparing for the upcoming FIBA World Cup qualifiers against Brazil here in Montreal. Uh, I learn so much from Dr. Jensen every time I have a conversation with him, so hopefully... Uh, you will too in this episode. You can link to the books discussed here at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, these simple actionable tips. If you're interested in more on the topic of elite mindset and sports psychology, then make sure to circle back to season one, episode number eight with Dr. Doug Kajijian on managing stress under pressure and on the entrepreneur mindset stress side of things. Season 1, Episode 3 with Dr. Megan Walker, as well as Season 1, Episode 9 with Mr. Keith Norris. Terrific. Welcome to any new listeners, and for our season ticket holders, the subscribers and regular listeners, welcome back, and thanks again for tuning in. Really appreciate your support. Um, Once again, Dr. Jensen is a legend in the field of sports psychology, and his insights are definitely very impactful, very practical, and very actionable, so I'm sure you're going to take home a lot from his decades worth of work in high performance and business. Listen, massive thank you to all those who've helped us out by subscribing on YouTube. Uh, We're moving toward our first goal of a thousand subscribers, so if you haven't already and you want to show your support for the show, just head over to YouTube, search the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, and subscribe. Once again, yes, big help to the show. And of course, you won't miss any of the phenomenal, phenomenal guests we've got teed up here for the rest of the fall. Fantastic. On to the show, season two, episode number 35. Enjoy. 
Peter, thanks so much for taking the time today. It's my pleasure. Terrific. Well, listen, Doc, nine different Olympic Games, you've supported Team Canada. Can you talk a little bit about your first experience working at the Games and working with elite athletes? Well, the first experience was way back in 1988 in Calgary, uh, where I had uh, figure skaters. So I had Brian Orser, Elizabeth Manley, Robert McCall, Tracy Wilson, all of whom medaled. And I think the only other medalist at that Games was Karen Lee Gardner, the, the skier. Other, other than that, since then, of course, what with on the podium and more emphasis on sports psych and getting out what you're capable of doing, uh, our numbers have improved dramatically. But those were our numbers back in that day. And of course, for yourself over the years, what are some of the things that have stood out uh, with your work in athletes, whether it's from uh, the receptivity of the athletes to the program or just how robust things are or, or things that you've noticed along the way? Well, I mean, the most obvious thing is that sports psych is very mainstream now. When I started out, there wasn't even sports psych per se. Um, I did all of my work in psych, uh, in, in the psychology department at U of A. Uh, I think I took a half credit in sports psych. And now, of course, you can do full graduate degrees, etc. cetera. Um, I, I think, however, the thing that has stood out over time is that it's still really important that if you are going to work in this field, because a lot of people seem to think it's a good idea to take up an occupation in this field, you better have a really alternate way to earn a living because, um, you know, there's not a lot of money in amateur sport. Uh, and I think the second thing is that unlike other disciplines, like you could be somewhat reserved or withdrawn and, and probably still be successful in other disciplines, whether it's nutrition or whether it's exercise, physiology, strength. But if you can't connect and build a relationship, if you can't build rapport with the person you work with in this field, um, you're sunk. And, and there's a lot of younger people coming out now with degrees and, and masters and PhDs, but they're researchers. And in terms of applying it, uh, as we are here in Montreal with our men's national basketball team, I mean, you gotta be able to connect with another human being. And so the personality of the person doing it and their ability to build relationships is really critical, really critical. Yeah, it's really insightful. And of course, um, you know, in, in your recent book, you talk about how many academics, and obviously I see this a lot, particularly in nutritional science, there's a bias towards the sequence of sort of analyze, think, and then change to solve problems. Um, thinking if people could just analyze the data, you know, think about the most correct strategy, then they could make the right changes. And of course, you know, as you point out, that's not really how the brain operates. It's more of a see, feel, change is perhaps a better method for achieving that outcome. Can you explain that a little more to listeners? Well, I think that, I mean, if you, you, you don't have to think long and hard to realize that logic changes nobody. Because if logic changed human beings, I mean, who would smoke? Who wouldn't exercise? Who would need healthy? Logically, we all know that's the route to go. But that's not how people change, of course. Emotion and imagination change people. And um, the emotion is very much the fast track to the brain. And if you think of the people in this world who most want to influence you, we call them advertisers, uh, they only speak one language to you. They speak imagery because it's much more powerful. It's a much fuller language. It's an older language. Uh, I was speaking to young basketball coaches today here in Montreal, 
and, and I said to them, you know, imagery is the language of performance in the sense that people can't do things they can't imagine. And that despite the fact that you may have grown up French or English, that wasn't your first language. Your first language was imagery. And it's a very old language. And as I said, the people who most want to influence you don't pick the second most powerful way to communicate with you. Almost always, it's with imagery, and imagery carries with it emotion. You know, if you're alone late at night in a house you don't feel comfortable in, uh, the minute you start to imagine things that might happen, your whole physiology starts to change. As far as your body is concerned, the only reality is the imagined reality. And that's true of an advertiser trying to get you to imagine yourself driving this automobile, and it's also true in the fear we generate for ourselves in that house we don't want to be in with images of things that have never happened to us, but nevertheless create the physiology as if we're in danger. Yeah, so, so very true. And, you know, of course, in your most recent book, Thriving in a 24-7 World, um, you talk about the value of pressure. And, of course, pressure impacts emotion a lot. I mean, people can drive anxiety, it can drive low mood, it can drive higher performance. So you use a great metaphor about, you know, basketballs inflated versus deflated basketballs. Could you uh, share that as well? Well, I mean, that was, a, that was a guy in a workshop in Houston. I was working with Potash Corporation down there. And he came up to me at the end of the day and said that <clears throat> he was working with a young man from a disadvantaged background who had lost his father and his mom was working two jobs and he was always talking about the pressure and the kid was trying to, uh, he was a good basketball player, trying to make it, get a scholarship in basketball. And he said, generally when I talk to this young man, I, I meet him out in my driveway and we shoot hoops and just chat. And he said, one day, uh, he said, I bought a new basketball. And I bounced it over to him and said, uh, how do you like that ball? And he said, oh, that's a pretty good ball. That'll work. And uh, then I, he said, I'd taken a pen knife and punched a hole in the old ball that we used to use. And I plopped it over to him. And, and he, said, he said, that's not going to work. <laughs> and I said to him, no. You know, no pressure, no bounce. It's the pressure that gives the basketballs bounce. And of course, it's the pressure that gives us our bounce. You know, uh, Kelly McGonigal, who's probably done more research in the last 10 years in stress than anyone else I know of, at least, out of Stanford, says that, you know, when people are under stress, it means two things. It means they think they can make a difference and that they care. And, and I think those are important things to remember when we're under a little stress. Uh, Mike Babcock, our Olympic hockey coach, talks about pre pressure being a privilege. He was speaking to uh, <clears throat> the World Junior team I was working with a few years ago, World Junior Hockey team. And uh, they were talking about the pressure of playing in Canada, et cetera, which is immense. Uh, World Juniors will draw twice the television audience of a Stanley Cup final, or an Olympic Games, for that matter. And, uh, and, uh, and he turned to them finally, and he said, yeah, but 100% of the players not in this room don't have any pressure. <laughs> in other words, the only reason you got the pressure is because you got a chance. Pressure is a privilege. It does mean you have a chance. That's that's phenomenal. Um, such a great way of looking at things. And of course, in your book, you talk about energy management. You know, what is energy management, and why is it important? Well, boy, that's a that, that's a long. It, it's a question that requires a fairly long answer. But let me try to abbreviate it. I think as we get busier and busier, we try to solve that problem by reallocating time, and. We have such a limited amount of time. We have 24 hours in a day. And that hasn't changed recently. <clears throat> and if you fail to notice the constant in that equation, 
the 24 hours, uh, you miss the point. Because you see, we think that if we manage our time well, the pressure will go away. And to a small degree, that's the case. You, you know, good time management skills are, are valuable. But at a certain point, that's not where you're going to get most of your gains. Because the truth is, time is the problem. You see, it's time and the shortage of it that makes us forfeit a good night's sleep uh, in order to get something done, that if we waited and did it in the morning, we could do it in a tenth of the time. It's, it's, it's not having the time to spend it with the people we want to spend it with, the people we love most that puts pressure on it. It's deadlines, it's all of these things. And when we start to think of ourselves as someone who has to learn to manage energy, not time, we start to find all kinds of time. For example, our arousal level is critical. Like when our arousal level goes too high, what happens to our attentional focus narrows? And it's not something you have any choice over. It's just the way it is. Uh, you've been in situations, for example, where, excuse me, <clears throat> you've been in situations, for example, where someone has really upset you. And you leave the situation, and five minutes out of the room, you're saying things like this. When she said that, why didn't I say this? And I should have said this and this and this. Well, if you can think of it five minutes later, how could you couldn't think of it right in front of her? Well, your arousal level got too high, your attentional focus narrowed, you missed the, missed the information. It's what we call choking in sport. Attentional focus too narrow, missing relevant information. The fact of the matter is, if you used a breathing technique in the middle of a conversation with her, you would have been able to handle it right there. Now it's going to rob time. You're going to think about it. You're going to talk to other people about it. And it's just going to constantly uh, steal time from you. Uh, we borrow time from sleep, as I mentioned, all the time. We never pay it back. We never pay it back. And there's all kinds of things that just drain our energy and take up time. Multitasking. Being negative with ourselves. Um, what I call ceaseless striving. In other words, trying to change the impossible. You and I having a conversation about how upset we are about the fact that they've made this decision and the decision's over, it's done, it's complete. Any conversation that we are having at that point doesn't take us anywhere. It's what Ben Zandler, the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, once called the conversation of no possibilities. <laughs> and again, it eats up time. But the problem is I haven't managed my energy. I haven't looked at what I can control, looked what I can't, learned to let go, started to acquire some of the skills that allow me to get better at managing my energy and at my performance. At the World Basketball Championships in Turkey a few years ago, I, I, we, I not, excuse me, we, the women's basketball team, uh, was shooting 51% from the foul line in the fourth quarter of the first two games. And so I taught them a simple breathing technique from Aikido called centering. And so they'd stand on the foul line, center, the referee would give them ball, they'd shoot the foul shot. They never shot below 81% again. We never did anything to do with the physical skill whatsoever of shooting the basketball. We only helped them get into the space to shoot it. And breathing is a, is a really, really interesting activity. I mean, obviously, it keeps us alive. But just as importantly, it narrows our focus, and it can calm us down immensely. You know, the biofeedback clearly points out that anytime 
you inhale over four seconds and you exhale over six seconds, the body will move into a very relaxed, very focused state, an ideal state for performance. And that's a skill we can all use today because the game has changed, not just for athletes, for all of us. It's a fast-paced world. It's more complicated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and learning some skills that we can use to monitor and uh, manage our energy through our day-to-day -day is invaluable. And not just skills to take your energy down because it's too high, but what are those, about those times in the middle of the afternoon when you're flat and you're unmotivated and you, you just can't get at what you're trying to do and you're looking around the office and you're thinking, you know, how could one organization have hired so many slugs, you know? <laughs> or you're saying to yourself, oh my gosh, I gotta get to bed at a decent hour tonight because you're flat. Your energy level is flat. Well, if your phone rang at that moment and on the other end of the phone was someone you hadn't heard from a long time, they bring out the best in you, you know, you hang up the phone five minutes later, you're full of energy, you're full of enthusiasm. So I suppose if you can get people to phone you at crucial points in your life, that might work, but maybe you gotta learn how to energize yourself. And you know, there's a, an author in the United States uh, Schwartz is his name, and um, he, he, uh, Tony Schwartz, and he, and he wrote a book called, um, what the heck is it called, on, on energy management, um, and full engagement, the power of full engagement, powerful engagement, and, um, and he talks about energy management, and he says, you know, you need to start to consciously take breaks in your day, and he points out something we've known for a long time, and that is we're not marathoners, we're all sprinters. And we have to recover. And about 90 minutes on a task is all you can take because you're, you've burned up the glucose in your brain at that point. You're not really uh, functioning all that well. And so you have to learn about every 90 minutes to get out and take a break. And I jokingly tell people who tell me they can't do that that they should take up smoking because smokers have no trouble taking a break every 90 minutes. For sure. Uh, and getting outside, of course. Get outside. It's really much more energizing. But you start to do that, you'll get a lot more done. I was, I was reading a little while ago an article um, written by a, a guy who heads up SunPower in the United States, the CEO. And, uh, and he, he wrote a little article called Leading by Leaving. And, and what he does every day uh, in the morning, mid-morning, mid-afternoon, he gets up and he walks out of his office and he said, I'm out of here. Like, I'm out of here in a loud voice. And away he goes. And he takes his 10 minutes and he walks around the block or whatever he does to to energize whatever is of value to him, and then he comes back in. And you know, if you stop and sharpen the saw every so often, you cut a lot more wood. And I think it's, it's an important skill set. So sometimes you're lowering your energy, sometimes you're raising it. But you're certainly not pouring it down the drain by thinking about things over which you have no control, multitasking, etc. And of course, we could also talk about physical exercise and nutrition in regard to energy because unlike your house where energy is pumped in and you just get a bigger bill if you burn more of it, the truth is that we have to acquire energy as people. And the number one way to do that, of course, is get adequate rest. We don't get enough sleep. And we know that every time the, the clocks spring forward in the fall, the number of automobile accidents the following Monday, even though that happens on a Saturday evening over Sunday morning, the following Monday, accident rates go up and the severity of the accidents go up. That's how close to the line we are in terms of rest and recovery. And in exercise physiology, of course, that's everything now. Like, 
Our athletes are doing omega waves in the morning. The world juniors bring down a urine sample in the morning because we got to know where are they at? Where are their energy systems at? Can we push them? Do we need to back off? All vital things, not just for athletes, for all of us now. Yeah, it's amazing on that sleep front. I had uh, Dr. Amy Bender on last year, CSI uh, Calgary, talking about um, the impacts of lack of sleep on whether it's performance, health, immunity, all those things. And earlier this year, Dr. Sherry Ma as well, talking about the influence on all these aspects. So it's, it's amazing how that's such a crucial part of it. Now, if we continue this conversation around things that are draining our energy uh, resources, you also talk about perfectionism, and I think that's something that a lot of athletes, elite athletes, or high performers would sort of maybe classify themselves as perfectionists. Why is that a big potential energy drain? Well, simply because it's totally inefficient to do most things perfect. <laughs> like, they don't require it. There are lots of things that require it. But if you're perfectionist by nature, it was fine when you were in university. If it took you 50 hours to write a paper that took somebody else four hours, and they got 89 and you got 94, maybe it mattered. But does it really matter? You know, does it really matter now? I mean, when it has to do with health, when it has to do with safety and those things, of course. But there's a lot of stuff where, you know, I always say don't let, don't let perfect get in the way of very good. Because very good is more than adequate most of the time. Most of the time, because trying to do everything perfect, oh my goodness, you're, you're just setting yourself up. You know, um, Tom Rennie, uh, head of Hockey Canada, we have a program, I say we because I've been working with Hockey Canada for a long time, a program at Hockey Canada called the Program of Excellence, which runs in the spring every year where we bring all the coaches in who will coach for Canada that year in under 17s, under 18s, under 20s, which you would know as World Junior, etc. And he started off um, this year saying, we call this the program of excellence for a reason. We don't call it the program of perfection. <laughs> you know, trying to be perfect, forget it. Forget it. That's not, that's not what we're about. We're trying to be excellent. We're trying to be very good. But the final little thing, sometimes it doesn't matter. You know, I don't know if you ever read the... Uh, there was a book written a few years ago on... Uh, on the, the tyranny of having to make so many choices in your life. You know, when you go to buy jeans today, there's, uh, what, there's 50 choices instead of just two. You know, there's wide leg, there's relaxed fit, there's this, there's that, you know. And, um, and, and the author talks about just the pressure that maximizers put on themselves when they're, they're trying to find the perfect thing, whether it's a dress, whether it's a car, whatever it is. And, and they'll take forever to do it and to make the decision and the pressure they put on the stress that exists in our society because of all this choice. Um, and it's called The Paradox of Choice, the book, by the way. And, uh, and, and it's so true. And, and what he points out is there's, there's maximizers who are trying to find the perfect solution. And of course, if you're looking for three months and it's tech, chances are there's something new out now yeah, and you sure. could just go endlessly and never buy anything. But he also talks about even after they've made their purchase, they're not totally satisfied all the time because, of course, they're still checking the prices on the car and seeing they could have got a better bargain. Whereas what, what are called salsifiers, these are the people who go, that's good enough. They buy it and they walk out of the store. They're not only make the decision in a tenth to a fiftieth of the time, they're much more satisfied with their purchases down the road. So, yeah, perfectionism is... is uh, that's a heavy cross to bear if you try to be that way in everything that you do. You may have an area or two where it's really important for you, but across the board, not good. 
Yeah, very, very well said. All that wasted energy is incredible. And um, you talk about some tools in your book to help with energy management and this idea of the skill of reframing. Can you sort of describe that for folks and maybe give an example of a potential exercise? I'll describe by way of a story. So I was at the World Figure Skating Champs in Paris, France in 1989, and I was, I had a rink uh, that the competition was being held in, the main rink, and there was a, a rink right beside it, something we're familiar with here in Canada, and, uh, and I was working with the pairs. And right next door, uh, Kurt Browning uh, had to uh, skate his figures. At that point, they had figures in figure skating, where you would go into the arena, it was dead silence, and you had to trace an eight or a, whatever you were tracing, and, and they marked it, you see. And, uh, and has since left figure skating, but it was part of every competition, uh, which has been... And, and, and the judges could really control that part of it. So uh, more than a few skaters got screwed by their marks. And, and I mean, think of Brian Orson. He won the short program, and he won the long program in Sarajevo Olympics, and he finished second. That's incredible. <laughs> How does yeah, that happen? Yeah. Well, because they screwed him in the figures, yeah. you know? So, so uh, anyway, I'm back to the story. So, so Kurt comes out, and um, normally when you skated figures, it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. That's where you practice them in your own rink. And uh, it was always dead silence and things. But, of course, at a world championship, all of a sudden there's 100 photographers with cameras and things like this. And so I said to Kurt, how'd it go? And he said, oh, he said, uh, not good at first. He said, I pushed off. And all of a sudden, all I heard was click, click, power, 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 power winder, power winder. And, and, and I said, what did you do? He said, I said to myself, well, if this many people are taking pictures of my figures, I must skate really good figures. <laughs> and that's an ultimate reframing. You know, like you look at the situation, which you may or may not like, and you choose the frame you want to put around it. You know, if you're listening to this, if you think of any painting or picture you have in your house, and the minute you change the frame, you take off the blue frame and you put up a black frame, different information gets highlighted in that picture. You start to see the blacks if the frame is back. If you put up a green frame, you'll start to see the greens. Uh, each frame highlights different information in the picture. But you know what? The picture never changes. You know, we're still, uh, the deadline has changed for the project. Uh, my, my oldest daughter going home late last night, and I got to speak to her about it. Like, the situation hasn't changed, but you can find a frame that fits. You know, uh, I remember a woman, when I was going through my cancer treatment program 10 years ago, I met in the waiting room, and, and uh, she, we used to see each other on a fairly regular basis. And one day I was talking to her, and, and she said, uh, you know what my cancer has taught me? And I said, I, I didn't, obviously. And she said, my, my cancer has taught me that normal optimism will not do. I'm not in a normal game, so being normally optimistic is not very helpful. I said, what does that mean to you? She said, I had to upgrade my ability at being optimistic to deal with what I was going through. And so things I used to take for granted, now I make a big deal out of them. In other words, I changed the frame. You know, life chooses the information, but you choose the frames. Um, you know, uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, who wrote Man's Search, Search for Meaning, talked about this when he talked about how in the concentration camps, you know, they could take away everything from you but how you chose to look at things. That that is something we always have within our own control. Even in horrible situations, we do have some control over how we choose to look at something. Wow, yeah, definitely powerful, powerful insights there. And just 
really goes to show you that the idea of you know, being able to use those frames, even though it can be difficult, is such a powerful way of, of, of achieving not only performance, but even health, mental health as well. Um, but of course, in sport, you know, many athletes, regardless if they're professional, elite, recreational, um, if we circle back to performance here, they perform very well in practice. You know, everything's going great, or a golfer on the range looks like a looks like a PGA Tour pro. But then all of a sudden, you know, when the games start or the pressure mounts up, all of a sudden they can't perform. And oftentimes, you know, coaches will use drills and various things to help um, improve that area. But what's the difference here between sort of part and whole learning? Um, can you describe that for listeners and, and maybe provide some uh, some insights there? Well, well, let's start with the issue you raised. You know, anytime you don't perform as well under pressure, and it might be giving a speech, it might be putting golf, as, as you would if no one else was around, there's only one place that problem can lie. Uh, you know, work, going away and working on your putting stroke or writing better speeches is not the problem. The problem is when people are present or people are judging me or it's important that I perform well, I don't. Or I don't perform as well as I'm capable of performing. Many years ago, Lao Tse, the Chinese philosopher, said, what's in the way is the way. And I consider that to be the most informative quote that I know personally, because it tells me where to work all the time. You know, if I'm working with a figure skater and she gets six triple jumps in her morning practice, but she only gets one in the evening competition because she gets anxious or worried or nervous, we don't work on the jumps. You know, if you have a bad knee, you don't rehabilitate your shoulder, right? Like, if the problem is you get anxious or nervous, then you've got to work on the things that are, are affecting that, right? And so, the first step, in my opinion, for high performance is you've got to become aware. Like, you've got to start to notice what's going on inside of you because that's where the problem is. And when I say problem, I see it as a challenge. I don't see it as not a disaster. It's not, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. No. The fact of the matter is we all talk to ourselves, uh, not so pleasantly some of the times, etc. cetera. Uh, that, that's just the nature of us, you know? And... and that's normal. And when you're trying to succeed under pressure, you're trying to do something abnormal. So you can't act normal to be abnormally successful. And you have to learn to step out of that, like that exceptional cancer patient who, who chose to see things the way she needed to see them to get through her cancer treatment program, for example. And it's not being phony. It's taking the stand for what you need at that point. Now, the language that you best want to communicate with yourself is the language we spoke of earlier, and that's imagery. And don't think of imagery as pictures, because about 80% of the population gets some visual in imagery, but 20% do not. I, too, I work with two world champions who got no pictures in their imagery. But they, they heard it, they smelled it, they tasted it, they felt it, which was really big, you know? And so the feeling component is huge. And we mentioned earlier that feelings and emotion are what change people and change you. And so the whole and part part has to do with this, that let's say that there's a particular point in your performance, whatever it is. It could be a speech, could be a tough jump in figure skating, but there's something where you stumble over, right? Well, you go and you rehearse that, that's fine, but make sure you put it back into the whole sequence. You know, I, I, I tell the figure skaters, you know, well, rehearse your, you know, about, about five minutes before you're going to skate, I want you 
walking through your program. So they walk through the program back as if they're skating it. But I always remind them, you just finished with the last jump you're going to do. And the first jump you're going to do is the next one. So, you know, just before you go out, rehearse through the end of that first jump, because that's the way you start. And if you get off to a really good start, that'll, that'll, that'll keep you going. But in practice, when the coach makes a correction, you know, often what happens if you're coaching somebody is they, they correct a correction, but something else goes wrong. And it's because they're so focused on the part, they haven't put it back into the hole. And, and it needs to go back in where it belongs because it's part of a whole sequence of things you're doing. And so I, I always remind people, rehearse the whole afterwards with the improved part. That's terrific. Uh, definitely crucial, obviously, for so many different sports. And you know, for yourself working with uh, so many elite and Olympic level, professional level athletes for over different uh, sports and domains, um, what are some you know common challenges that would come up in terms of you know for yourself and being able to deliver some of these things to athletes? Uh, it's the same challenge with every athlete. I have to build a relationship with them because the conduit along which my message is going to travel is my ability to establish rapport and connect with this other person. And so it's almost always has to do initially with just talking about general things. I almost always start by having them write a self-assessment. And, and the reason for that is because I think there's probably 10 places you could start. But I'd like to start where they see the issue is. And so particularly if they're not particularly vocal or they can't articulate the issue, you know, I have them write an instrument called a taste, which teaches them how they pay attention, how they get distracted, etc. Then I can sit down and say, okay, here's, here's what you've just said about yourself in answering these questions. It, it, so it sounds like you're hard on yourself. Is that correct? And they go, oh, yeah, I'm really hard. Well, give me an example. And then we start there. Because, you see, it's just the thin edge of the wedge anyway, Mark. Like it's... It, it really doesn't matter where I start. Everything's going to, all roads will lead to the issue eventually. So better start somewhere where they are engaged and they feel like, oh yeah, that's something I'd like to deal with. Then I come in and say, here's what you should do. I try not to shit on them, so to speak. <laughs> I, I try to work with where they're at. Yeah, and they're all different. So uh, you connect with them in different ways. You know, some you build a relationship very quickly, others it takes a little longer. But ultimately, in the end, that's my goal. I've built relationships with athletes by playing Yahtzee with them. Or going to find out someone really loves ice cream, and away we go, you know? Uh, or, or maybe, you know, they grew up in a certain area, and I know that area. And so we talk about people we know in common. But eventually, and it doesn't take long, you get enough of a relationship that They'll come to you if there's something. But I, I do not ever, ever go to an athlete and say, I can help you, or here's what I could do. Uh, it, it has to come from them. Like they have, The first step has to be theirs. They need to come in and say, I need some help with this. And to recognize that that's normal. Like, why is that any different than needing help with flexibility or with your endurance? Or with, it's, it's no different. It's no different. Uh, I don't do therapy. I teach psychological skills. When I leave, I want them to be able to handle it all. There's no point in me having the skills. They're the ones that need them. That's fantastic. Yeah, very, very well said. And 
Um, of course, in, in, in medicine as well, you know, as a clinician, seeing patients, it's sort of that similar theme of what you just said there. Once you build a rapport with a patient, then all of a sudden they can take on board the information so much more and they feel like they're leading the, uh, the, you know, the, the protocol. And, and same on the nutrition front, there's obviously that tight connection in psychology and nutrition of, of why people choose to eat uh, certain things or, or take advice from certain people like loved ones over oftentimes, you know, quote unquote experts. Um, but on this, circling back to you know energy management, almost from a thirty thousand foot view here, um, you use a great analogy uh, metaphor again in your book about a thermostat rather than a thermometer. I think that's yeah. a great way for to get listeners to really understand the concept. Can you share that with folks? Are you are you suggesting that Gwyneth Paltrow is not a really good nutritionist? <laughs> that's unusual. Uh, yes, I can explain my metaphor. Uh, yes, I, I do try to convince performers to try and be a thermostat, not a thermometer. If you think of a thermometer, it will always rise or fall to the temperature of the environment it's in, whereas a thermostat you control. And so the idea being, you decide. You set the level that you need to be at to perform well. And certainly with athletes, you learn. You learn over time, this is where I perform best, when I'm this pumped up. You know, when I worked with uh, figure skater Elvis Stoiko, he could put a number on where he wanted to be out of 10. And so he'd know, you know, when I skate out to start my program, I want to be at about a four or a five out of 10 for him. Because when he gets to the middle of the ice and he's waiting for his music to come on, he knew that he would rise. His, his you know, his anxiety or whatever would go up to the point where he was going to be a six or a seven where he needed to be to skate. But he understood that ahead of time because if he went out at a seven, it might throw him off. Uh, Steve Bobvarsky, an old time skier from years ago, a uh, terrific guy told me, you know, going up a lift, depending on the run, he wanted to be between a seven and a seven and a half. And so they monitor it, and if it's too high, they take it down, breathing, or reframing, or whatever, whatever they need to do, uh, because they know themselves best. Oh, I'm putting pressure on myself by the way I'm thinking about this. So they, they change the perspective, or they breathe differently, or they run an image of what they want, or they remind themselves of their good qualities. All, all things that will be a benefit to them, you know? But mainly managing your arousal level. Because if it gets too high, you're going to make a lot of mistakes because you'll miss information. And if it's too flat, you won't be going full bore. And in most sports, you got to give it. And that's one of the reasons, you know, they want to overlearn activities. You want to overlearn it so that you can take a lot more energy and still perform well. You know, the energy that you and I can take into a golf swing is not going to be the equivalent of uh, Roy McElroy, because he's grooved this swing to the point where he can go at it, every ounce of his body can go at that. You and I did that, the ball be all over the place, all over the place. And so when you learn things very, very well, which is why world records get broken, you can take more and more and higher and higher energy levels into your, into your activity. That's, that's why repetition is so important. And, you know, we were talking about pressure earlier, and I should point out that there was a woman um, C.N. Bielock, uh, that I know uh, at the University of Illinois, who's a brain researcher, and she wrote a book called uh, Choke many years ago. Uh, not about athletes, just about writing exams and all the pressure of everyday life, and she'd done a lot of research on it. And one of the things she discovered was that, you know, even small simulations of what you're going to face are invaluable when you get to the real situation. You know, being forced to give the speech to your family at the dinner table, or at least the opening, when it's going to be in front of 200 people, that will still help prepare you for those moments. 
And we had Chris Hadfield in to speak to our, the astronaut in to speak to our, our uh, athletes at the last Olympic lab, um, I guess two Olympic labs ago. And, he, and, he, and, you know, they simulate all the time because, you know, as he said, you're focused on what could kill you in the next minute. And so they set up, they think of something, well, let's set up, let's mock that up and let's go through it and see what happens. And they're constantly simulating uh, so that when they get to the real situation, um, they can perform. Fantastic. Doc, so many great insights here today. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So last question here for you. Um, in terms of sports psychology, where's the evolution, do you think, going in the next decade in the field of sports psychology, elite sport? Well, it's certainly leaning more towards a lot of bio and neurofeedback stuff right now. And I think that's because it allows individuals to see. So I know, for example, our, our women's soccer team has a, a mind room, and they'll have various um, devices in there where the more relaxed you get, the faster your horse runs in the video, that sort of thing, because they practice the skills. But also for our listeners, you know, there are so many really good apps out there right now. I mean, uh, I, I have an app that I use for breathing called Heart Rate Plus, Heart Rate with a Plus sign, the coherency one. And, you know, this device would have been thousands of dollars five years ago. And you put your finger over the camera lens and you follow the breathing pattern, as I mentioned, four in and six out. And it will start to measure your coherence. A little mountain will start to rise in the middle of your screen. I think the app is under $5. And uh, you'll, you know, you'll be able to see how well you're doing. Coherence being you know, how well synchronized is your heart rate to your respiration rate. And you, and you get very good at it very quickly. And so you develop some skills that allow you to manage your energy on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. You know, you're stuck in traffic. You got something you can do as opposed to get upset, bang the steering wheel, try to will the traffic going further. You can manage your energy. You're in a lineup at a grocery store. You know, it's a chance to learn to breathe. I've decided, and I'm 72, so I can say this, I've decided that all the senior citizens in the express lanes you know, looking for exact change, have been sent to teach me how to breathe. And so every time I'm behind one, I go, all right, God, this is my teacher today. And, and I practice breathing again. Bring my arousal level down. I leave the store in a lot better frame of mind. I haven't waste throwing energy out the window uh, as if I left the window open in the middle of the winter and I'm just wasting energy. Rather than getting all upset or anything, I've used that opportunity to just come down to where I need to be. Uh, but I think that's where it's going, you know, because then people can see how they're doing. Uh, there's no question uh, that meditation and those skill sets are, are really vital, uh, lifelong skill sets. I've done 10-day total silence meditation program myself, that sort of stuff. But most people aren't going to take an hour or two hours a day to do meditation, but they can take five minutes to get on their iPhone and instead of staring at it, uh, you know, practice the breathing technique. And so the next time they're on their computer and they're downloading a program and they wonder why the download line is moving so slowly, rather than getting all anxious about it, they can breathe while the line's coming down. And so when it's finally downloaded, you're in a lot better position with more energy than if you hadn't done that. I think that's a good note to finish on right there.
Yeah, that's fantastic. And definitely for uh, people commuting in Toronto on the 401 or the TTC at busy times, that's definitely a great opportunity uh, to get that breathing in. Um, Doc, really appreciate you taking the time out here as we're in the training camp with Canada Basketball here in Montreal for the FIBA qualifiers. Where can people stay connected with you and pick up one of your fantastic books and keep up with your uh, work? Well, the books are available online or at bookstores, but uh, we have a, I have a website, Peter Jensen, so peterjensen.ca or peterjensen.com. Either one will get you to me. Um, the company's called Performance Coaching, so if Peter Jensen doesn't do it, find Performance Coaching. Fantastic. We'll definitely include those links uh, discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, Dr. Jensen, thanks again for, for coming on today. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Dr. Peter Jensen or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Keep those comments coming. They are definitely greatly appreciated. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please take a minute, subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcatching platform. Thanks again and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.